from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Welcome to the Centre for European Reform podcast, everybody. Uh, my name is John Springford. I'm Deputy Director of the CER. Today, we're going to talk about Britain, but uh, you'll be glad to hear not about Brexit, or, or at least only tangentially about Brexit. Uh, Jonathan Porters, who's Professor of Economics and Public Policy at King's College London and a Senior Fellow at the UK in a Changing Europe think tank, is with us. Jonathan, welcome. Thanks for having um, me. Absolute pleasure. Um, Jonathan is a senior civil servant in the uh, in the Treasury in the Department of Work and Pensions in, a, in his former life. Um, and so we thought he'd be the perfect person to talk a bit about the future of the UK economy, state more broadly. Um, and the way that I thought we could structure our conversation is to talk about three things. The first being how the British state coped with the pandemic and the extent to which the austerity programme that preceded the pandemic was a part of that. Uh, the second is the outlook for the recovery. And then the third is the future of migration after Britain has left the EU. Uh, so there's the tangential bit of Brexit. Uh, and migration is a is a real specialism of Jonathan. So we're extremely lucky to have him here. Uh, okay, Jonathan, so if you dive straight in. You've been a, a critic of uh, George Osborne's austerity programme. Uh, George Osborne was the Chancellor under Prime Minister David Cameron, for those who don't know. Um, there were big cuts to public services and welfare. I think generally your, your criticism has been about the state capacity, but also about the macroeconomics of it broadly. But recently you've been discussing how the British state was prepared for the pandemic and the extent to which the austerity programme contributed to the extremely poor outcomes that we saw with Britain having among the worst death rates um, uh, among advanced economies. Um, could you just sort of lay out your views on, on the relationship between austerity and Britain's very bad pandemic for us? So I think there's two aspects here. One is the shape of the general economy and society, and the second is, is as you say, state capacity. On the first, um, the UK is a very unequal society, um, and it became significantly more unequal in the last 10 years, not so much in the headline income distribution, but across a number of other dimensions. Um, in particular, we saw widening health inequalities. Um, you know, the UK has... As I said, it's long been a very unequal society, and that's particularly true uh, in terms of health. Um, but while there had been some very slow progress to reducing those inequalities in the period up to 2010, they actually seem to have widened since 2010. So the consistent growth in life expectancy, uh, which it had preserved um, up to 2010, sort of stalled or at least flattened off after 2010, um, but in a rather differential way, it continued increasing, albeit at a slower rate for um, better off people. But at the lower end of the income distribution, it stalled or even uh, um, for some groups may even have, have actually slipped back a bit. Uh, now, it's quite difficult to attribute direct causality here um, because clearly life expectancy is determined by a bunch of factors. It's certainly not just the NHS or even mainly the NHS. It's to do with income distribution, to do with the way people work, 
um, pollution, environmental causes, and all sorts of other factors. Um, but I think, um, as, as Sir Michael Marmot has written extensively in, in a number of, of pretty comprehensive reports, um, the connection between um, austerity and in particular cuts to benefits in public services was quite strong. And I think um, the other aspect is which we went into the pandemic unprepared was this sort of increasing number of people in vulnerable positions. So we saw that in this, this very large rise in food bank use over the last decade, um, food banks, which were really a feature of the UK for the 2010s um, growing. So an increasing number of people sort of on the margins of, of subsistence. Um, we saw street homelessness, which had been largely eliminated uh, uh, under the uh, previous administration, growing again. Um, so uh, uh, you, you saw the, these vulnerabilities. Um, and that was, I think, very much illustrated uh, um, when the when the pandemic rose, that people uh, um, who were in these more, most vulnerable categories, clearly, for a variety of reasons, were by far the most likely to get sick and die. Um, so if you look at the um, the distribution of um, you know the, the correlates with people who are most likely to get sick and, and die, um, you have very very clear um, correlates um, both independently and, and taken together um, with uh, with poverty, with deprivation, with housing, with overcrowded housing, um, with uh, ethnicity, and and with disability. Uh, quite astonishing figure yesterday, which suggested that more than half of the people who died of COVID were disabled, um, whereas fewer than one in five of the overall population are. Um, and I think that, you know, that, 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 um, that, that you know, that, now it's hard to compare across countries. And I suspect that some version of this is true to a some extent in, in other countries. But I suspect, uh, you know, I, what, from what I've seen, more dramatic in the UK than almost everywhere else. Um, and I think, you know, taking, for example, ethnicity, there was some speculation at the beginning that the, the differential death rates by ethnic groups might have something to do with genetics. Mm. Um, and maybe there is some genetic element. Um, but uh, I think everything we've seen suggests overwhelmingly it's socioeconomic determinants, not genetics, which, which drives those, those differential death rates. So that's one aspect of vulnerability. The second, as you say, is, is more this um, state capacity. Um, where uh, clearly, um, you know, we, we've seen, for example, that the big constraint um, on health, the, you know, the, the ability to treat people and help people has been, um, has essentially been staffing. So when it came to it, the government actually acted very quickly and commendably in creating these new big temporary hospitals, the Nightingale hospitals, um, which was great, but they, in the end, they were hardly used at all because they didn't have people to put in them because the staff weren't there. Um, and, and that illustrates the, the extent to which, uh, um, you know, the, the capacity of the NHS to deal with in the road. By contrast, on the upside, I think my old department, the DWP, which has had a pretty hard 10 years in many respects, long, long, you know, a long set of issues to do with the introduction of universal credit, delays uh, 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 around the introduction of new IT systems and so on. Fortunately for them, the timing for this was just right in the sense the pandemic came along just as the universal credit system was finally properly up and running. And it's actually coped extremely well with the pandemic. They've coped with very, very large increases in volumes in a very, very short period of time. And I think some praise is due there actually.
that's all incredibly plausible. But I guess the, the counter argument that one could make, or maybe it's not a counter argument, it's a kind of supplementary um, point, which I think is important, is that, you know, there are many poorer countries, especially in Asia, such as Vietnam and China, that, that had the right strategy from the start. They also have lots of people living in multiple generation households and high levels of density and lots of people working in sectors of the economy with lots of face to face interactions like, um, you know, places in the UK that are, that are poorer. But by going for, for a zero COVID strategy from the start, using hard lockdowns to eliminate community transition, and then a, a very tough quarantine and testing regime as conditions for entering the country in order to be able to keep COVID out, um, they, they've been much more successful. Um, and, you know, the, by contrast, the UK, the Prime Minister locked down relatively late twice, leading to thousands more deaths than if he had locked down a week or two earlier. Um, Britain had porous borders until recently. Its quarantine regime is still not as tough as in other countries. Um, and last year it opened up while the virus was at a low level, uh, but, but it was still being spread. And we thought we could manage the virus with test and trace and local lockdowns and the autumn wave overwhelmed that. So, you know, I, I just wondered if what your thoughts were about um, okay, so we went into it in a relatively unprepared manner, but also the management of the pandemic, it seems pretty clear, was sort of the really big factor in what drove our relatively high death rates compared to other advanced economies. Well, I, I think I think that's true. Um, and I think that is less about state capacity than about political decisions. However, um, one can't get away from the fact that to a greater or lesser extent, almost every European country has had some variety of the same failures, right? Uh, uh, um, in different ways. And the UK, even within European countries, doesn't come out looking great. But equally, it's hard, you know, the UK doesn't look like a, a huge outlier compared to um, Spain, France, and Italy. You know, our, our, our experience looks um, in some ways quite similar with a combination of lack of realization of the nature and extent of the crisis, political vacillation and missteps in a number of points. So uh, I think that is much less about state capacity and about the, the nature of, of European political systems. And as I've written elsewhere, uh, one, one of the things which, which in some ways comes out of, of this is, uh, um, of, of the last year is, you know, both in, in terms of in our response to the pandemic in both health and health and economic terms is Brexit or no Brexit. Uh, we are still very obviously a European country behaving like Europeans and uh, uh, for better or worse. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's that's an extremely good point. Um, and, I'd, and I'd note as well that um, uh, there's a big debate going on in Germany about whether Germans should be allowed to go on holiday to Mallorca this year uh, or not. Um, and the extent to which uh, the CDU, which is struggling in the uh, in the run-up to the federal elections in the autumn, um, may may do something which is clearly not recommended by the epidemiologists. Um, let's let's turn to the recovery from the pandemic. The UK's vaccine program has has been a, a huge success so far, um, and I, I guess from what you've written, I'd put you on the more optimistic end of the spectrum about about how rapid the the recovery, the economic recovery, will be. And um, is that fair? Um, I think that's fair, um, because in some sense, it doesn't seem to me obvious why the pandemic, despite the dreadful consequences for uh, um, people who, who died or got long term sick as a consequence, it's not obvious to me why it should have 
damage the productive capacity of the economy to any great extent, particularly given the extraordinary support measures that it put in place. In what sense are we less able to produce stuff, produce goods and services uh, than we were uh, uh, a year ago? You know, you know we, we have averted, um, the, you know, it seems to me, probably the risks of a substantial rise in long-term unemployment. Uh, but I don't see any sign that, that there are going to be huge business failures among particularly highly high productivity businesses. Um, and in terms of permanent changes of behavior, uh, well, the jury is still very much out on this one. Um, but just sort of, you know, what one one sort of crude observation is is the I think we were all surprised at the extent to which we adapted to new circumstances during the pandemic. And I think we may all be surprised by how rapidly we go back to uh, um, in some respects at least to normal. Um, there may be some permanent shift from work to working from home, but I don't see why that should necessarily be productivity destroying if it's handled well. Uh, um, so overall, you know, it seems to me that that uh, I, I can't see any obvious reason why we should allow this to have a, 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 a to be a permanent hit to, uh, to the economy to any significant extent. Um, and given that, I'd expect a, a relatively quick and strong bounce back. Um, there'll be some ups and downs. We might get a, a, a bit of a consumer boom in the uh, next few months uh, as a consequence of the economic and psychological consequences of unlocking. Um, and then, of course, uh, um, we, you know, that, that, that may reverse and, and we will have the continued impacts of Brexit to contend with, um, which will be a, a medium and long term dragging anchor on the UK economy. Um, but I think in the, in the short term, I am relatively optimistic. Um, you know, the, you know the, the forecast of unemployment, we're at you know, 12%, then 11 and 10%, then, then 9%, then 7.5%. And now it looks like um, it may not even reach 6.5%. Indeed, yesterday's unemployment figures were, were still stuck at 5%. Um, so, you know, that, of course, is a, a, the flip side of the huge amount of uh, um, economic support the government that, that provided. Um, to uh, two workers to keep and firms to keep them on payrolls, but uh, um, you're assuming that that is not prematurely withdrawn, and I don't think that's very likely. Um, you know that, that it's not clear why there should be a huge amount of permanent damage. Mm. And I, I mean, thinking about the the medium to long term, you mentioned uh, a kind of mini boom because everybody's so happy to be out and about, and richer people spend down their their lockdown savings. And um, but I I guess. It would be really get, great to get your thoughts on on how big a risk it is. You think that we return to the malaise of the last decade, uh, where we have very weak wage growth, productivity growth is pretty awful. Um, you know, you could argue too that um, yeah, Brexit is, as you say, going to be a drag on drag on the economy for many years. Um, I've also been thinking a bit about the argument of Larry Summers, who's the former Treasury Secretary under, under Bill Clinton, who has been a, a bit of a critic of the Biden stimulus, which is pretty huge. I mean, $1.8 trillion uh, in the new bill, potentially another $3 trillion in an infrastructure bill, because he's he, Larry Summers is worried that it, it's so large that it will overwhelm the supply capacity of the economy and lead to inflation. Um, so, you know, it... it if we are heading back to a, a, a kind of a, a, a bit of a slow growth, low inflation world, you know, should we be thinking about doing something along the lines of the Biden administration in, in, in the UK? Or does, does Brexit, 
the fact that it may constrain the supply capacity of the economy, make it a bit more inflation inflationary, or at least uh, lower the threshold at which the uh, the Bank of England has to raise raise interest rates. Does that does that mean that that kind of policy option is not necessarily open to us in the same way as it is to uh, the United States? Um, I think the simple answer is we don't know. Um, uh, Larry Summers doesn't know, um, and uh, uh, neither does anyone else for sure in the US. Um, so to my mind, this is very much about the balance of risks. If we get it wrong on the, uh, the contractionary side, we risk, as you say, uh, another decade of slow growth, slow growth in productivity, uh, slow growth in living standards. And uh, um, at the same time, uh, that growth is likely to not just to... Uh, uh, entrenched, but to, to further exacerbate structural inequalities I talked about, because, uh, you know, not only were, were people um, who were doing less well uh, worse hit by the health impacts of the pandemic, they were worse hit economically as well, whereas people like uh, like me, um, in secure jobs who can work from home, have got all these accumulated savings. There's a real risk that, that we get a, um, a uh, macroeconomic recovery that doesn't look too bad at the aggregate level but is intensely unequal at the individual uh, um, and community level. Um, and so we have stagnation, not necessarily for, for everybody, but stagnation for a very large part of the population. And I think that is really dangerous. So that is the downside risk. The, the risk on the other side is that we put too much money into the economy, try and do too much, and we have, uh, so we, we have some extra inflation. Um, that does not seem to me to be, that seems to me to be a risk worth taking. I think it, you know, the sorts of when 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 Larry Summers, you know, draws n numbers in the air about the output gap and says, well, this stimulus is much bigger than the output gap. Maybe he's right, but nobody knows what the output gap is. Certainly, Larry Summers doesn't. And if you asked Larry Summers two years ago what the output gap, he'd given you a completely different number, quite reasonably. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, um, so, so it is, in my view, very much a balance of risks. And the upside risk is that if you do, you know, the Biden plan not only is ex extremely expansionary um, um, with the, um, the opportunities and risks that that uh, 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 in, in, entails, but it also is hugely redistributionary. Um, it would, according to some estimates, reduce child poverty in the US by half in one year. That's absolutely astonishing. Um, and there, you know, I, I don't, you know, again, the, 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 what, what are the upsides and downsides here? The upside is um, a substantial boost to overall economic activity combined with a massive reduction in poverty. Um, the downside of getting it wrong is that you might have too much inflation um, and you'll have prices rising too fast in some sectors of the economy and the Fed will have to raise interest rates somewhat more quickly than otherwise would have. Um, that seems to me to be very much a worth, risk worth taking. Of course, you can't just transplant that to, to the UK and say we should do exactly what the Biden Biden's doing for all sorts of obvious reasons. Um, but I think the general principle very much holds. Interesting. And uh, I'd, I'd just like to flag that um, uh, hopefully a few days after listeners hear this podcast, uh, my colleague Christian Odendahl and I are, uh, are putting out a short piece, just thinking a bit about the applicability of uh, the, uh, the, the Biden plan to Europe's particular economic problems. Uh, so look out for that. Um, okay, the, 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 the final thing that I want to talk, talk to you about is you're such an expert on it is migration. Um, it's fair to say that you've been you've, you've been fairly optimistic on immigration from the rest of the world, making up at, at least in part 
for uh, for the end of free movement. Um, uh, why 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 is that? Um, well, so when Theresa May was in power. Um, it was clear that um, her objective was to end free movement and to level down, to ensure essentially that Europeans faced this, the same regime uh, that non-Europeans um, faced, a regime which she had made as Home Secretary considerably um, more restrictionist. However, the Johnson administration has adopted a rather different approach. So free movement is indeed ending and the same regime will apply to both Europeans and non-Europeans. Um, but that regime is considerably less restrictionist than that that previously applied to non-Europeans. It has a lower salary threshold, lower skill requirements. There is no longer any cap or quota on the number of people who can come in. There are essentially exemptions for medical professionals working in the NHS. There is no resident labor market test overall. So we have not seen uh, um, a leveling down. We've seen a sort of meet in the middle with a system which is significantly more restrictionist for Europeans who previously could have used free movement, um, but significantly less restrictionist for non-Europeans. What will the balance be? Um, it's hard to tell. Um, and of course, the, uh, um, the, the, the pandemic has, has thrown both what we know about what's happening now into to, to chaos because we can't collect the data we normally do and um, raises question marks over the future, both in the short term while restrictions on travel continue and even the medium term because you know, what will there be changes in the nature of working, more remote working and so on. But nevertheless, just looking at the, uh, the change in the system, um, it is much less restrictionist than we would have got with Theresa May. Uh, um, and, you know, it is the thoughts one could criticize about the, the system, both in principle and practice. Um, but I think it, it's considerably better than, than I would have predicted two or three years ago um, and doesn't necessarily entail a large foreign immigration. Alongside that, uh, a sort of a wild card here is the, uh, the government's um, a very radical decision to offer um, visas, uh, opening the way to long-term settlement for up to 5 million people from Hong Kong. Um, now, uh, we have no idea at all, and it's completely outside the control of the UK as to how many people take that up. Um, the Home Office, about what range of estimates, not unreasonably in my view, runs from 10,000 to 1 million. Um, now, presumably it will be somewhere in between, but who knows where. Um, but I think that there's two things that are significant about that. First of all, is the political one. Um, the government has faced no opposition at all from its own party or anywhere else to this pretty radical move, mm -hmm. which no previous government, conservative or otherwise, would have even contemplated. So that tells you something about the changing political environment towards immigration. There really is at the moment. That may change, but at the moment, um, there's been no political pushback against this. It's really quite radical and liberal measure. Um, and the second thing is that this is potentially, a, 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 you, know, um, you know, the worst things are in Hong Kong and China, you know, the worst for Hong Kong, the worst for China, the worst for the world in some geopolitical sense. But um, there is a silver lining for the UK economy. It's potentially a huge economic opportunity for us. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I said we weren't going to talk about Brexit very much, but um, one thing that comes to mind is uh, you're finding with Michael O'Connor, that the loss of, loss of people during the pandemic has been pretty large, possibly up to a million people, maybe a bit less. I saw the Resolution Foundation and other think tankers come up with a slightly lower estimate. Um, but obviously, this is this is pretty huge, and it's difficult to tell if those people will come back. The majority, as far as I understand it, of EU nationals, they may have settled status, we don't know. Um, 
so it could well be that we have a period where the growth of the labor force is actually pretty similar to what we've been used to since about 2004 after the pandemic um, but at least there have been a, a, a quite big fall in the labor force if you know the, the 500,000 to a million people is is right um i guess the, the the most important thing is is not necessarily the level it's the it's the rate of growth really in terms of what the economic effects but, but the fact that we've lost lost a, a, you know 500,000 to a million people i mean do you think that that will have some tangible economic effects over the next few years um, I mean, I think, you know, as you say, the un, you know, we, there, there, there's huge uncertainty here. There's uncertainty about what's actually happened, um, whereas you say, we think the lumber left is large, but we, there's really a lot of uncertainty and, uh, and debate, uh, quite reasonably, uh, um, uh, uh, because the data simply don't give us the sort of information we'd like. Then there's uncertainty about the future. Will people come back and will new people come? Um, there is an optimistic scenario, obviously, where the UK's recovery is quicker than most other countries because of the vaccine, and hence we become a much more, relatively much more attractive place instead of being a much less attractive place. Um, so you could see quite a sharp snap back, um, but it, it, it is very hard to tell. I do think this is, you know, this clearly is potentially a risk that we permanently lost some people, and that, that and, and that that is not made up for by inward migration in the next few years. Um, but at the moment, I, I you know, I, I, I say, I, I, since I am I'm very cautious now about saying what I think has happened over the last year, I think we all have to be very cautious about predicting what's going to happen over, over the next year. Uh, um, but it clearly is a, a source of further source of, of uncertainty. Um, well, despite the uncertainty after, after that conversation, I've been feeling, uh, I'm feeling reasonably optimistic. So, so thank you, Jonathan. Um, and that's the end of our podcast. And thanks for listening, all of you people out there. Uh, I hope you'll listen to the next CR po podcast and do subscribe and rate us on whichever subscription service you use. Thanks very much. Thank okay. you. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.